seems that every culture has a certain vocabulary, and when you're new to that culture, you have to learn the vocabulary to kind of figure out how things work. And in our culture, in congregations like Omaha Bible Church, we love two words, and we use them often together, and those two words are sovereign grace. If you don't know what sovereign grace is, I'm here to help you so you can fit into our culture, but we talk about sovereign grace a lot. We talk about it in relationship to the fact that God and God alone is the Savior, and He saves the way He wants to save, and it oftentimes is mysterious to us. It is amazing to us. It's a good way of capturing what Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. And so if you're new to Omaha Bible Church or congregations like this one, and you you think, why do they keep talking about sovereign grace? Well, we love sovereign grace because we love God. He's sovereign. He's the king. If you're a sovereign, you're royalty. And God is sovereign in that he does whatever he wants to do because he and he alone is God. He's therefore free to do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't have to check with us. He doesn't have to take a poll or check with the committee. He's sovereign. And he's not sovereign like other royalty. He's the sovereign, the Bible says. He has all power, so he can do whatever he wants, unlike other sovereigns. He has all wisdom, and so he, he knows everything, and so his choices are always the right ones, if you will. He's the sovereign. Oftentimes, this makes unbelievers uncomfortable, It makes immature Christians uncomfortable sometimes too. But when you come to realize that you're not sovereign and God and God, no one else is either. God and God alone is sovereign. There's something amazing about it. And then we put that other word with it, grace, sovereign grace. Grace is receiving a gift. Salvation is only by grace, we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, as well as all over the Bible. It's something we receive freely. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. Some of you have heard it defined this way. Grace is unmerited favor. That's pretty good. You get like a B if it's unmerited favor. That's a good place to start. But oftentimes we want to go a little further and say grace is actually demerited favor when it comes to salvation because we're not spiritually neutral. No, we're all spiritually dead. We're all sinners. All have sinned. And so we're actually guilty and God gives us the great grace of salvation. It's not only unmerited favor. It's that, but it's demerited favor. Oh, I love to talk about sovereign grace. I love to hear other Christians talking about sovereign grace, even though it can be a little bit of a code language for the initiated. I want you all to be initiated so we don't have to explain ourselves all of the time sovereign grace. You say, why are you talking about that today? I thought we were studying the book of Acts. We are. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 9 today. If you're just joining us, I say this almost every week, welcome. We are really enjoying ourselves studying this amazing book. And in Acts chapter 9, I don't have an outline. I tried. I like outlines. Uh, But the one thing that just kept echoing in my mind is sovereign grace. Sovereign grace, sovereign grace. The way God saves is not the way I would save. Those God saves would not be the ones I would save. But indeed, sovereign grace is a reality. And it's somewhat jarring, but it's exciting. It's unpredictable, not to God, but to us. And so we are going to be on an exciting journey. Can I say journey at Omaha Bible Church? Usually that's an outlawed word because it's so cheesy. But we're on an exciting journey in all the right senses 
to see sovereign grace on display in Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts is a book of action. That's a good way to think of it. Uh, it's the, the acts of the apostles, the unique individuals that Jesus Christ designated to lead the early church. So it's, so it's the actions of the apostles. Uh, it's also the actions of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is working uh, in the world in a unique way in and through them and people. You could also call it the actions of Jesus because it's the Spirit of Christ and the apostles of Christ all are in fact true. It's been exciting. I think today will be exciting as well. And we are going to look at all 43 verses, Lord willing. Um, when someone falls out of the window and dies, I'll stop. So the, the, there is a natural place. I'm getting ahead of myself in the book of Acts. There is a natural place to stop if we need to. But I, I want you to be impressed with God and his sovereign grace. And even though what happens in Acts 9 is non-repeatable, even though his sovereign grace is tied to this historic event in Acts 9, guess what? He's still sovereign. And he still extends his grace in the 21st century. It might look a bit different, but it also looks the same in different ways. Have you found Acts 9 yet? Okay. Here we go. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Notice how awful that is. He's breathing murder. That's impossible. But Luke is capturing the awfulness of it. Breathing threats, but he's breathing murder. It's in the very core of his being. And it's just what comes out of him. And then it says, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this guy named Saul is so venomous and vicious and against Christians, against those who follow Christ. Here they're called the way, which is a pretty cool title for Christians, given that Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way. It won't be our next church plant name because a cult has taken the name, uh, the Way International. They deny the deity of Christ, but I digress. It is a cool name. But what does he want to do? He wants to destroy Christians. Not only that, he wants to travel some 135 miles to Damascus to go and get all of those Christians who flee Jerusalem and extradite them to go and storm into the synagogues and have them arrested, not only the men, but also the women. That's how vicious he is, and bring them back to stand trial, to either be imprisoned or to be executed. How awful and how zealous and passionate this guy is named Saul. If you glance up to chapter 7, verse 58, chapter 8, verse 1, that's where we first met this individual named Saul in 8 in 758, it says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That would be Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They are showing homage to him. He's approving what they're doing. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Ever so quickly, just to kind of fill in the biography a little bit at least, I won't go extensive, but in Galatians that this same man would later write, it says in one thirteen, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Galatians one twenty three, he once tried to destroy it. 
Acts chapter 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. Acts 26.10, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. One bad actor, one bad opponent, one vicious, tyrannical opponent against Christians, against the way, against the followers of Jesus. His conversion account is in chapter 9, it's in chapter 22, it's in chapter 26, so we'll see it multiple times. And by the way, this Saul is the one who is also known, otherwise known as Paul. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Saul, who was also called Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Latin Roman name. He's still called Saul even when he's Paul, depending on which language you're talking about. Sometimes Christians are confused about that. But he's going to be the apostle mainly to the Gentiles. So he'll be called Paul. Okay, verse 3 says, have you ever noticed I go slowest at the first couple of verses? She's kind of setting the pace, getting us going, but now we got to speed up a little bit. Okay, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, so he's getting close, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 22.6 of Acts says it's about noon when this happens, and it's from heaven. 26.13 says it's at midday, so it's likewise, and it says this is brighter than the sun. So it's not something you can naturally explain. It's origin is heaven and it's blinding brighter than the sun. It didn't happen at night and it's a flicker. It's meant to be extraordinary. From heaven, divine appointment. Verse 4 says, and falling to the ground. That's where all the Christians go. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Reminiscent of Luke 10, 16. We won't go there. Pretty heartwarming to Christians. Saul's not persecuting Jesus, is he? He's persecuting, persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. If you've ever wondered where the doctrine of union with Christ came from, it didn't come from the Apostle Paul. It came from Jesus to the Apostle Paul. He claims this as his own. Why are you persecuting me? Imagine persecuted Christians finding their hearts swelling, being encouraged. You know what? We're in this hardship and Jesus actually says it's him in this hardship because we're united to him by faith. Very, very encouraging thing. A very encouraging thing to hear. Then let's keep moving to verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's, he's blinded at this point in time. Oh, how the mighty zealous one has fallen at this point in time. It's important that we do see that there are eyewitnesses. This conversion that he experiences is not psychosomatic. 
It's not made up. It's not a matter of his imagination or something like that. There are eyewitnesses to this event. Now, we're going to read later that they don't understand. They don't understand all the ins and outs. But they were there and they understood enough to know something extraordinary happened here. And that's actually important. And I keep beating that drum in the book of Acts. Historic events to our benefit, to their benefit, but to our benefit as well. This isn't something that some cult leader made up. No, they're there. They're eyewitnesses. Then if we keep reading in verse 8, it says, So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I'm using self-control to not make offhanded comments about if the Daniel diet doesn't work, try the Damascus diet. Um, You know, when the Bible isn't about Jesus, people make up the weirdest stuff. (laughs) This is about Christ. He's devastated, right? He's devastated because he's been persecuting adamantly against the church and he meets Jesus in a radical way. And what does he do? No doubt he doesn't want to eat. He's devastated. Maybe he, he's remorseful. He feels terrible. Now, now what in the world is going to happen here? This isn't designed for us to somehow follow this example. This is to show us this unique, extraordinary thing that's happened. Because it's going to be about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13 says, rather predictably, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, but much how much evil he has done to your saints. I like that solidarity too. They're your saints at Jerusalem. They belong to you. Verse 14 says, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, this is really important. Make sure you get this. Go for he is a chosen You could translate that elect. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Just one of many times where in my mind I just kept thinking, sovereign grace. Who in their wildest dreams would have ever possibly imagined He is my chosen instrument to preach the gospel far and wide in a unique way. That guy? Are you, are you possibly even, what? That's right. Sovereign grace. In Galatians 1.15, the apostle Paul would, would later say, He who set me apart before I was born. Oh. Think about that. Who would have ever thought, well, it was determined by God that this is how it was going to be. Before I was even born, he called me by his grace and who called me by his grace. 
You know, we go back to chapter 1, verse 8, which we've gone back to. It's kind of the touchstone you go back to because it talks about this this sending out of the apostles and the gospel is going to go here and it's going to go there and it's going to go there and it's going to advance. And, and it's exciting to know that Jesus promised that this would happen. Who on on planet Earth in their wildest dreams? Let's just think about Stephen or Stephen's family or friends could have imagined it was going to be carried out to the ends of the earth even by Saul. Sovereign grace. Surprising grace because it's sovereign grace. Amazing grace because it's sovereign grace. Maybe makes us uncomfortable grace because it's sovereign grace. Exciting stuff. How about verse 16? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's going to pick up on that later because he's going to suffer greatly and say it's, um, it's a, these are actually marks of an apostle because you belong to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians chapter 6. But let's keep moving in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, sovereign grace. Who would have, how would he ever have, have ever thought he was going to say that? Brother Saul? Shocker. Sovereign grace shocker, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uniquely controlled, he's already been regenerate. The Spirit's already been working, but like we've seen so many times in the book of Acts, there's going to be a unique controlling in his life. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. I realize this is old hat to lots of us, but just can you imagine? In your wildest dreams, this is how Acts 1-8 would happen? I don't think so. I don't think so. Obviously, he's converted. The pattern so far has been in the book of Acts. For example, last week in chapter 8, the men and women believed and they got baptized. So Luke doesn't always give all of the details, but obviously he's come to trust in Christ. Obviously he's come to believe in Christ, and it's shown because he's doing the official Christian thing, the official Christian sign, if you will, of a Christian, he's being baptized. Saul has been converted. Saul has become part of the way. Saul has become a believer. Absolutely staggering to the mind that this has happened. Now, as a very quick aside, because it comes up in some of the newer commentaries, and it's somewhat relevant. Who here thinks that the Apostle Paul got converted in Acts chapter 9? Can everybody please show their hand? Do you think the Apostle... I'm not trying to trick you. If you raise your hand, or if in your heart you're raising your hand, (laughs) because I'm just going to assume that you are, I think ever since there's been this event... Ever since there's been Christianity on planet Earth, the common consensus has been, Acts chapter 9, along with the other two accounts, would be the conversion of Saul. That is, until 1997, when N.T. Wright wrote a book called What St. Paul Really Said. I bring this up because it comes up in the commentaries and because N.T. Wright is a popular commentator promoted by pastors in our city and around the world. And oh, N.T. Wright says he wasn't really converted. 
Well, I think N.T. Wright is wrong. Um, not about everything. You see, he just had a different perspective. He just needed to come to realize that Gentiles are included in a way that he hadn't anticipated before. Well, that's true. Gentiles are going to be included. But what can I say? I have to get this off my chest. Some of you come to me and say, is this a good book? No, I don't think it is. I think he's a wolf. N.T. Wright believed that the Apostle Paul had the gospel right. You, you believe and you do good works and you'll be justified. That's how it is in the Old Testament. And you move to the New Testament and you believe and you do, do good works and you'll be justified. Well, that's wrong in the Old Testament and it's wrong in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was an unbeliever. He was dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, like everybody else. And he was made alive by the Spirit. And he went from denying justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Read Romans chapter 10. To affirming justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And as a result, he gets baptized. So, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. One of my responsibilities as a pastor, though, is to promote sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. And uh, because of the popularity, I say, you know what? Let's just side with all Christians who have ever walked planet Earth. The Apostle Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9. He's not only enlightened with a new perspective. Okay, we better move on. Let's move on to verse 19. And taking food, is that where we were? Okay. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he, I love the, the immediately, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Persecuting Jesus, proclaiming Jesus. And Luke really wants to pick up on that. You know what? This is a radical shift. And as soon as he has his strength about him, what is he going to go do? He's going to not persecute. He's going to proclaim. And I love the fact that it says, He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He's, he's, he's equal, right? That would have been blasphemous according to unconverted Saul to put Jesus on that same level. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now with boldness, he's going to learn a lot more, but he knows his Bible well enough to know he is the Son of God. He is. And no doubt he's saying other things and no doubt people knew, even if he didn't say other things, what he was getting at. Proclaiming Jesus. Proclaiming the truth about Jesus and what he's accomplished. Proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Proclaiming the need to believe in Jesus. But here he just records this unique, special, extraordinary reality, which we can assume by what he says. He's, assume, he's implying all the other things. He is the Son of God. He's the one who can rule and reign forever like only the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant could. He's equal. I love it that the Apostle Paul preaches Jesus. That'd be a good thing for us to learn because sometimes we are so impressed with the conversion of the Apostle Paul we, we like to proclaim Paul and go on and on and on about, whoa, he was such an amazing leader. And he did this and he did that and he used to be this and he used to be that. And those things are true. But let's take our cues from the Apostle Paul. Remember 1 Corinthians 1 and 2? He's not busy preaching himself. Right away, he's preaching Jesus. And it's about Jesus because Paul is not the fourth person of the Godhead. Okay. He's not divine. He's not the way and the truth and the life. He preaches Jesus. 
And we're thankful that he does, but let's make sure that we see from the very beginning he preaches Jesus. Verse 21 says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc, attacking with the intent to destroy, who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And the answer is yes, but I can't help myself. I love that. He's using so many different ways to describe Christians. The way, all these different things, disciples. And here, did you notice? All who called upon his name. That's a good way to remember what Christians are. Christians aren't the do more, try harder, faith and works will get you there. You know what it means to be a Christian? To call upon his name. Save me! By God's grace. I love that. And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yeah, that's why he came here. But oh, what an amazing thing that's happened with sovereign grace. The purposes of God. Saul had purposes and he was zealous about them. But the sovereign purposes of God are what stand. I hope you're encouraged. How about verse 22? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded. Lots of different ways you could translate it, but one literal way to translate that would be confounded to mix, to stir up. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They're like... Right? Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. (laughs) And what is Jesus, or what is Paul doing? Saul, either one. He's proving it to them. He knows his Bible well. Read Philippians chapter 3. He knows that they know their Bible well, many of them. And he's using rationality. He knows he can't convert them, no doubt. But he is, as it says, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And it is scrambling their minds. Again, I like to say, don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. He wasn't asking them to have faith in faith. He wasn't asking them to turn their brains off. He was showing to them, no doubt, that Jesus, the one who he was against, is actually the one you need to trust in. It's wonderful to see. Luke uses a different word in Luke chapter 1 when he says he wanted to present the gospel so that his listener could have certainty. Let me prove to you that he's the one you should trust in. The historic person, the scriptures, the eyewitnesses. Indeed. Indeed, he's the one. Okay, let's keep moving in verse 23, if you will. In verse 23, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now if we fast forward to verse 26. And when they had come to Jerusalem, or when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. I wonder what the soundtrack to this would sound like. So now, again, we're skipping ahead when it comes to chronology. He goes to Jerusalem. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
So the disciples didn't believe in Saul's belief. Saul says he believes in Jesus and we say, we don't believe in you. (laughs) How could this possibly be? 27 says, but Barnabas, we learned about chapter 4, verse 36. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and who spoke, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He, he did that. And we have a credible eyewitness explaining this, that he did that. Talk about sovereign grace. If it's true, it's definitely sovereign grace. 28 says, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, that says a lot about Saul, but what does it also tell us? It actually says a lot about the disciples. It actually says a lot about the other apostles who were in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're, they're going to forgive uh, they're going to be reconciled. Arch enemy, you know, in a certain sense, arch enemy kind of number one. And you know what? Now it's in and out, freedom, acceptance, not a grudge. That That's pretty extraordinary. I think only Christians who understand what it means to be forgiven of their sin end up doing those kinds of things. No grudges. Moving forward, I guess this is how Acts 1-8 is going to play out. Indeed it is. Okay, verse 29 says, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are the ones involved in Stephen's stoning, more than likely, back in chapter 6, verse 9. He disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers who were opponents not long before, remember? And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So they're going to send him to modern Turkey, where he's actually from, from Caesarea. When you're in Israel, you'll think it sounds weird because they say Caesarea, not Caesarea, but it actually makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's named after Caesar. Lots of things are named after Caesar. So you have Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea by the sea. This is the Caesarea by the sea, which is where Philip is, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 40. So they need to get him out of there for safety, at least for a time. And now there's a great summation. You don't want to miss this. Verse 31 is a great way of summarizing this particular part of the narrative. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, think Acts 1, 8, Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Pretty, pretty unpredictable. Echoing in my mind again is sovereign grace really? That's what's happening right here? It's not that the threats are over. I don't want to be here forever, but even even where it says uh, at the end of the first sentence in verse 31, being built up, I happen to notice that's passive. I think it's passive on purpose. They're being built up. Not that they're being passive. They're doing things. They're, they're called to preach. They're called to love one another. But who is actually doing the building up? 
They're being built up because God, according to his sovereign grace, is strengthening the church. And it's not just an, a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a mile wide. It's growing in breadth, but it's also growing in depth. They fear the God who can raise the dead more than the people who can only take their lives. And so there's a certain kind of unique, extraordinary, supernatural peace. They've come to know that even the likes of Saul can be converted. That's a pretty good thing to know when you're facing conflict. Keep preaching Christ. You never know. Only God knows. But faith comes by hearing. Ever so quickly, let's start in verse 32. We're going to have a scene change, a different camera angle. If we were watching this on the big screen, we're going to look at Peter here ever so quickly and we'll wrap up. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. That's between Jerusalem and the coast, between Jerusalem and Joppa, which is where he's going to go. 33 says, there he found a man named Aeneas. Bedridden for, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, I've got a pretty pr- good prescription, but is Jesus there? He's not there. Through the power of his spirit, he is there. But notice Peter is a unique apostle, who has unique apostolic authority. And so if this is going to happen, Jesus is the one who's actually doing it in and through him. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, the broader region, saw him. Again, public kind of seeing. And they turned to the Lord. Luke is assuming that we know they're hearing the gospel. But there is this unique, extraordinary baby church accompaniment with signs and wonders so that they will pay attention. There's a unique work of God here. And they come to believe the gospel. Now, here's another account. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa. Sometimes on maps it'll say Jaffa. One of my favorite cities I've ever been to. Jonah is it? Joppa. They would float the cedars of Lebanon up to the north down to the seaport town of Joppa so they could bring them inland to build the temple. Also in the Old Testament. Unique historic city. Napoleon has been there. One of the coolest places I've ever been. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, Aramaic name, which translated in Greek means Dorcas. I would choose the Aramaic. She was full, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, customary, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. One of her unique special ministries of kindness and charity and generosity, making these things that they would wear when they were widows and weeping. And verse 40 says, But Peter pulled them all aside, pulled them all outside, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, 
he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Same kind of thing. Credibility. Who are these people? Who is this guy? Oh, unique, extraordinary. Can't replicate it. Let's listen to what they say. And the Lord has used that. Now I wonder, this Tabitha person is really fascinating. I wonder if this event would have been in... Let's just speculate for a moment. You all look like you need a little break before we wrap up. Let's speculate. I wonder if this event was included in her obituary. Preceded in death by her father, mother, and herself. (laughs) Only to be raised by an apostle to demonstrate the power of Jesus to raise the dead forever. Amen. (laughs) Send gifts and donations. (laughs) She would have died twice. This isn't the apostolic health plan. That's why I brought it up. She would have died again. But she would have died believing that there is one who raises the dead so that you will never die. As Jesus himself said. Just remember that. 43 says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. And there's lots to say about that, but I'm going to save it for next time. It anticipates the next chapter, and so we'll end on that. But as you're closing your Bibles, by way of wrapping this up, just to think through sovereign grace and testimonies in Acts chapter 9. When I was a brand new Christian, oh, it probably was in 1989, living in Lincoln, Nebraska, 1404 North 24th Street. I had a room I rented for $75 a month. It was seven by seven. I had a mattress, a small desk, and a dresser. But none of you care about any of that. One of my mentors, my main mentor said, I would like you to share your testimony at an event. And I would have been willing to do anything. I was excited about salvation, forgiveness, new lease on life, if you will. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And he said, well, just look at the Apostle Paul's testimony in the book of Acts. And I remember sitting in that room, the seven by seven room, fretting, praying, reading this account, or it might have been one of the other accounts, but it's the, it's Saul's conversion account and thinking, if I'm going to make my testimony sound like that, I'm going to have to lie. I'm in all seriousness, I was so distraught. I felt like such a dummy. I felt so stupid. I just thought, I, I know I was lost and now I'm found, but I might have to start making things up, which I didn't really want to do. My conversion, like everyone else's, isn't Acts 9. Acts 9 is the conversion of Saul, the historic figure who lived at a unique time and space and history and he got converted. Praise God, sovereign grace. And most of our testimonies don't look anything like his. Some are pretty radical. And I bring it up to say, if you tell me your testimonies like his, I probably won't believe you. It might be radical. Unique figure. But... 
the reality is still the reality, right? Whether it's through severe, dramatic kind of circumstances or pretty ordinary, I grew up at Omaha Bible Church kind of circumstances, there is a similarity. There's a huge difference, but there's a similarity because the Apostle Paul himself will say that everyone is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. Like all the rest, he belabors the point. And God made us alive together with him. If you're a Christian. And that's sovereign grace. And that's astounding. And that's radical. And that's significant. That's miraculous. But just know that whether your testimony is on the extreme side of things or on the ordinary side of things, sovereign grace is still true. And as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Amen? That's why we want to give God all of the glory because it is sovereign grace. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in this world. Sometimes so much of what's happening baffles our minds and causes us great grief. And yet at the same time, we know that you are a sovereign God. You are in control. The history is headed somewhere. And that you are causing all things to work together for good to those who love you and for those who have been called according to your purpose. Indeed, we are thankful for you and we're thankful for your sovereign grace. We're thankful that there is sure resurrection in Jesus. Encourage our hearts with these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.